Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and today we are joined by David Gornoski. David Gornoski is sort of our resident LCI mimetic expert, so what we're going to do today is we are going to, on the first day of 2018, we are going to look back at 2017 and think about the uh, events, the major uh, happenings during the year, and David is going to give us a look at that through what we would call a mimetic lens, and what does that look like. So, uh, as we jump in, David, why don't you uh, give us a, a brief overview of what is mimetic theory? We've we've talked to you about this on our podcast, so of course we want listeners to go do that, but give us a give us the 90-second soundbite. What is mimetic theory? And then we'll kind of jump into the uh, the events of the year. Well, great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And uh, yeah, mimetic theory is uh, um, a social science theory developed by Rene Girard that encapsulates anthropology, the study of literature, uh, mythology, sociology, psychology, the whole gamut of social science, um, as well as humanities. And uh, it basically is uh, the, the premise that human beings are primarily imitative creatures that we copy not only the gestures and, and behaviors and appearances of others around us, but we also copy uh, what we perceive their desires to be, what we perceive their um, interests, their um, affections to be. We copy that almost on an unconscious level. And uh, from that premise, Rene Girard developed a whole sweeping um, uh, house of, of uh, data to represent, you know, evidence for why that is the case. And then it, the, the second part of the theory is what he's become probably more well known for is his scapegoat theory, which is that because human beings have a massive proclivity to imitate the desires of our neighbors, that we can get caught up in a uh, ping-pong game of rivalry where it becomes almost impossible to stop uh, escalation of tension and of violence and aggression between individuals, and then ultimately it's violence spreads like a contagion into a community where the whole community is in an uproar of violent, aggressive energy. And the way communities resolve that, Girard says, is through... Um, arbitrarily finding a scapegoat to someone that stands out and killing that scapegoat, blaming that scapegoat for the cause of the problems and uh, ultimately purging them uh, from the community. And from that purge comes a united union, uh, a sense of catharsis because everybody is united where they were once divided. 
Now they are united. United we stand, divided we fall. That comes from that concept that Girard developed in history. And so Girard says that the scapegoat mechanism was something we stumbled onto in our archaic communities, but eventually, over time, we started to do it over and over again in an intentional repetition way. And that's where we get the idea of the sacred, where we get the idea of sacrificial religion. And that sacrificial religion is the birth of human culture in history. Okay, so that is, in a nutshell, it's actually fairly simple to kind of grasp. At the same time, it seems like it's a lot of work, uh, at least for me maybe, uh, because I don't think that way initially. And to get your mind around... Um, you know, how, how does this apply to what I see going on uh, every day? You know, you've made comments to me, uh, you know, on Facebook and things like that. You're like, you know, watch watch the mimetic uh, rivalry happen here. I told you I was going to an NFL game once, and you're like, just watch the just watch how the crowd acts. You know, they project. I forget what it was that you you said specifically, but I was like. Well, wow, that's a lot to notice. So what we what we want to do here, and Nick's going to take over here, is to. Um, is to talk about what these events going on. So what does a mimetic lens look like? How do you see the world through a mimetic lens um, in, in, with respect to major events that happen in the year 2017? So Nick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand that to you. Right. So we're about a year out now from the inauguration of Donald Trump. And David, you had an article at LCI earlier this year in which you argued that Trump was the scapegoat supreme. Uh, and so about a year ago when he was inaugurated is kind of around the time we saw the rise of what has uh, been known as Antifa. Uh, I guess it started a little bit before that, but basically it's this, uh, this far-left uh, movement that is willing to destroy property and, and inflict violence uh, against what they consider fascism, and they consider Donald Trump a fascist. So can you talk to us about uh, looking at, at Antifa and that entire... Uh, hard anti-Trump to the point of of destruction and rioting movement. Yeah, I mean, the, the Antifa is the, the only way you can understand what causes that is to understand uh, how Gerard uh, puts Christianity in history. So that, you know, as, like I alluded to earlier, human beings created their culture through the sacred, through the delineating line between that which was um, uh, good violence and that which was profane violence. And good violence was sacrificial violence. It's better, as Caiaphas, the high priest who killed Jesus, said, it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. And that is the logic of the state at its very origin, and that's the logic of, of religion, and ultimately that's the logic of uh, pagan religion. So that that whole framework is that's what you get the idea of the Greek logos, the divine social ordering principle of a community. Um, and and what Gerard says very quickly. I mean, you can go a long detail with this, but just to get to the headlines of today, Gerard says that Christianity comes along as acts like a virus, uh, a good virus in the sense that it unmasks and unveils and slowly deconstructs and destroys. The foundation of sacred of, of sacred violence, so that when Jesus comes into history, he does not incite people to imitate him in a rivalrous way. Rather, he says, "You will do greater things than me." No other great man of history has ever said that to their followers. They never say, uh, "You know, you're going to do better than me." 
it's always the implicit assumption that, well, I'm the great guru, just try to keep up, you know? And Jesus ends that rivalry concept when he comes in to inaugurate his culture, which is the great counterculture of state culture in history, because he does not set up a, a, a model. Because remember, everything, all culture is based on rivalry, which is ultimately based on role models, you know? We want to be like the, the, the great king, so we got to act the way he does. Well, if your king is someone who uses might makes right and power over others to get their way, within the community around it will reflect that same ethos that the king as the supreme role model uh, is, is, is demonstrating. And, and with Jesus, it's a downward motion because he's saying, no, if you're going to serve, I mean, if you're going to be a leader, you have to wash the feet of those beneath you. And that downward posture uh, reverses uh, a kind of um, the entire logic of state culture. So fast forward to now with Antifa. Uh, Antifa represents um, a, a culture, 2,000 years Christianity has been infecting the West with uh, anti-sacrificial um, uh, art and ideas. Now, we don't, we, because humanity is slow to repent, we haven't fully, you know, grasped the fullness of the gospel revelation. We're slow to give up our right or our, our privilege to use violence to get our way over other people. But nevertheless, because the gospel has reoriented our, our minds to be uh, considering the idea that every human being is made in the image of God, and that uh, your social status, like if you're poor, it's not because you're cursed by the gods or you're wicked or demonic, but rather it could be that the God reigns on the just and the unjust. All of these things that Christianity introduces, despite the church's failings and actually living up to um, what it's supposed to be, the art and the aesthetic of Christianity has still infected the West so that victimism is the reigning um, cultural movement in society. And you see that with Antifa because they believe that they have the moral right to use violence to stop people who they believe are harming victim classes, you know, gender uh, victims, racial victims, sexual orientation victims, class victims. All of these are victims. And these victims were originally the classic targets for scapegoat lynchings or sacrificial violence in the pagan era. Um, if you were a racial minority in a community in the pagan times, you would probably be more easily selected for a scapegoat uh, murder if someone needed to channel their aggression onto somebody. Uh, if, if a community needed to vent its, its, its uh, aggression onto a, a scapegoat, if you're a racial minority, you'd be a target. If you're a woman, you might be an easy target. Um, if you broke uh, sexual taboos like incest, um, you, you might be a target for scapegoating. Well, see, all of those things are the things that the left and what I call victimism is all fueled by today, defending the classic scapegoat categories from whatever uh, uh, sense of unjust um, um, actions they see towards them. So, and that usually isn't even about violence. It's just about differentiating them. Like if you differentiate that there's something different between man and woman, that's violence and the idea of the left. And it's because they're so hypersensitive to uh, differentiation of these other groups that 
they feel as if the very act of differentiating or making a boundary difference between race or gender or any kind of thing, uh, you are automatically guilty of violence and therefore we have the right to use violence against you. So that's what Antifa is. It's the rise of, it's, it's still the same scapegoat violence that Jesus came to end, but now it's masking even more, more sneaky, in a more sneaky way, it's masked in the language of Christianity in the sense that it's trying to defend the weak. Well, and as we think about uh, this sort of idea of blaming otherness or, or expropriating blame to, to some third party, we're also really seeing a lot of that this past year in foreign affairs. So Russia is the number one example. We have the Russiagate thing going on where it, everywhere you go, the left is just, oh, it's Russians behind it. Russians are behind everything. And, but then also the administration is coming down hard on North Korea, Iran, uh, they bombed Syria early this year, so we're seeing a lot of stuff in foreign affairs. How do we look at that through a mimetic lens? Well, war, you know, as Randolph Warren said, is the health of the state, and we can see that tribal warfare is one of the earliest features of human culture. And it, war is a form of sacrificial ritual, writ large, where whereby you send young children uh, that are representative of the community, and those are the actual sacrifice. You know, you shed their blood to the life, to, to preserve the lifeblood of the collective body. And that collective body, of course, in the old days was called Thor or Odin or Zeus or what have you, but now we call it will of the people, democracy, uh, Western civilization, what have you. Um, so, We've replaced the old gods as justification for divine warfare. We've replaced those terms with ideology and um, political theory concepts as if we've somehow moved in a different direction. We really haven't. Uh, it's just even more perniciously hidden by our own hubristic concept that we think that we've surpassed the, the idea of, of religion in our culture. In reality, we're still we're still sacrificing our human our children to these collective gods that give us a sense of oneness. That united we stand kind of concept is wrapped intrinsically around uh, notions of the flag, notions of if you're not a uh, a patriotic type person and you're more of a leftist, the notions of the one world order where everybody can get along and everybody can be a, a, a generic blend of whatever gender, race, anything you want, just to, just to blend it into this neutral, um, you know, uh, automaton kind of concept where there is no difference anymore. All of that is still wrapped up in religious impetus. So, like, yeah, when you see Russia, Russia is a classic scapegoat because, uh, why? It's a mimetic double of, of America. You know, they're the only other great uh, ostensibly Christian civilization on the world stage with nuclear power. And uh, we see them as our rivals. They're like mimetic doubles. If this was Street Fighter, they're Ken and Ryu, you know? I don't know if anybody knows that reference. But uh, the idea is that we, we tend to want to have conflict with those who are most like us because they kind of they threaten our very existence as to what makes us unique and supreme and distinct in the world. So, yeah, Russia is a classic target for uh, blaming and scapegoating. Not that they're perfect. Of course, they scapegoat us in the same way. That's how this kind of thing works. But with Trump, the reason why they've been obsessed with trying to attack him with this Russia thing is they, he dared to challenge the, the, the sacred 
priestly class in their assessment that Russia would be a perennial enemy. And he said, well, hey, let's just be friends with them. Well, no, you can't do that. That's like, what is it, the Capulets and what's the, the uh, um, with Romeo and Juliet, you have the two families. This is like trying to become friends with the other family. You're not going to get anywhere with that if you try to do that. So, of course, he broke a taboo there. And so they had to irrationally try to throw some kind of lying accusation against him that he broke the sacred taboo, the sacred ritual of the voting right by colluding with this foreign infection, this foreign wicked evil power. Of course, it's all garbage, but it just shows you how if you want, if you want to know why government exists, you cannot say, well, it's because human beings are too dumb or they're not. They're not using reason properly or whatever. That's that's. It's not about teaching people better facts. It's about teaching people what really is the truth, which only the gospel can share with you, which is that human beings uh, on a deeper gut level want to uh, cling to the old gods of the pagan order, which is what the state is a vestige of. They don't want to let go of that uh, and, to, and to turn to Christ and renounce the entire entire um, system of evil, which, as Paul said, if they knew what they were doing to the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him. He's talking about the whole logic, the logos of, of, of the state, and that's what we're wrestling with again today. Not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, which are behind things like the Russia witch hunt and Iran and North Korea, all those. What is North Korea? North Korea, just remember this about North Korea. North Korea, very bad, very bad country, of course. But it's ultimately the demoniac. You know, the demoniac and the garrisons. The garrisons had to have a demoniac. They had to have the demoniac that was named Legion, he called himself. He was possessed with multiple demons. And when Jesus cured the man, when he healed this man, it says something very interesting, that the community was very afraid when they had saw what had happened. And it's because they had lost their ability to have an other, to have someone outside themselves that they could then collectively define themselves as not them. And so that's why we need North Korea to be wacky and creepy and scared and always poke at it, because that's our demoniac in the world stage. And, and Iran and Russia function in different ways like that same, in that same way. Kind of along similar lines, and another big story that we've seen this year has been the, the travel ban, the Trump administration travel ban and the, the struggles over that, different judges ruling against it, and it's being upheld more recently. Uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we look at that in this context? I mean, is it, I mean, I mean from, from a purely secular or utilitarian perspective, you know, you could argue, well, okay, it, it makes sense to want to put additional restrictions on people from countries with high terrorist presence, at least for a, a time. But, but really, if you get more deeper into it, uh, isn't this just another example of like saying, oh, Arabs are the problem or Muslims are the problem and we got to target in on those specifically. And, and so it becomes another form of scapegoating. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I do think that a lot of the anti-immigration sentiment is fueled in its passion from a scapegoating instinct. However, it's a it's a tough subject, and I don't really have a clear answer about immigration issue from a Christian nonviolent standpoint. Because on the one hand, uh, we have clear indication from Scripture 
that we should be very uh, accommodating and caring for the refugee and the person who's traveling and visiting your town. But on the other hand, the system that we're in is a predatory system in which uh, the powers get more and more power the more people they have that they can feed on on welfare systems, free health care, free um, education, free um, you know hospital visits, and so forth. And so there's a point in which when you have this all funded by a fiat currency system, which is slowly robbing people through a violent monopoly on money, uh, and it's slowly eroding the purchasing power of the middle class and those on fixed incomes, it's a very it's a it's a real double bind that only a satanic system could create in the sense that you want to do the right thing and take care of people who are genuinely in need but at the same time you cannot have this sense of anybody and all can come in there as long as this welfare system is set up as it is and as long as the fiat currency system is set up with a monopoly because eventually you're just adding more and more milk cows so to speak to this predatory you know factory farm which which depends on its very existence on more and more people who are coming from dire situations who want a piece of uh, of, of the free currency of the of the handouts that are financed by um, uh, fiat money. So it's really a, it's a it, and there is a scapegoating impetus to a lot of the immigration uh, attacks. But I think there's a, there's a way that you can thread the needle and have some semblance of a transitionary where you have to have some kind of privatization of accepting refugees and, and other people coming in um, in a way that doesn't, um, uh, doesn't continue the per to perpetually rob those who are already here by adding more burden to this uh, house of cars that's going to break eventually. Now, what about the harassment scandals? So we've seen a lot of that, and it seems to just, it's, it's snowballing. It's like every week there's, there's more material here. It sort of started in Hollywood, and now it's, it's landed in Washington, D.C. Uh, wh what do we think of that? I mean, there's, there's obviously different degrees here. There, there, there's a broad, we're talking about a very broad topic, since there's different degrees of accusations and different stories and contexts and things of that sort, but just broadly speaking, and if you want to get into the specifics, uh, feel free. How do we, how do we look at that memetically? Well, is that happening in Indonesia? The sex scandal? I, I, I don't know. It, is it? I don't think so. I mean, what my point is just, uh, I, you don't see it happening in, uh, countries that are not as westernized, right? So that gives us another clue as to the effects of the gospel, making this something that's even a thing. Because um, there's something about saying that God stands not with the clique, not with the insider crowd, uh, but with those who are abandoned, wrongfully accused, exploited by powerful, by the powerful, and left to die on the cross outside the camp, outside our cliques, outside our town centers. That's where Jesus is, is found in the Gospels. And that aesthetic has been infecting our art and our film and our economic theories and our sense of civic language and everything for 2,000 years and fits and starts. And we get it wrong and we burn witches and we make stupid choices, but we're still struggling to you know, come to grips as a species with this nuclear power of the Gospel. And so that's what you see here with the sexual uh, scandal where you know now... It's becoming so that 
you know, because women in the past were sometimes scapegoated as witches or scapegoated or easy targets to sacrifice to the god of uh, the Aztecs or the Incas, all these other, um, you know, or even more modern times, just, you know, just not giving them fair uh, protection from being exploited by violent or aggressive men. Now, there's a sacredness to their victim status that that is leading people to want to feel as if uh, just an accusation alone is enough to scapegoat and railroad a person out of town because of the power of the victim status that a female should have in our culture. And that is an effect of the gospel. Now, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of how to exercise the revelation of the gospel, but it is an effect nonetheless of a culture steeped in the gospel. And I think this is so important because if you're people who are struggling with their faith and say, I don't know, you know, uh, if I can keep my faith in Christ, but all you have to do, if you read Rene Girard's work in mimetic theory, dive into the text, dive into some of the great books, you'll see that Christ is king of history. And there is, there's something bizarre about the fact that it's only in the West where this victim obsession is strong. It's only in the West where there's this obsession with uh, uh, sacredness of those who are the weakest. And that comes from a culture it comes from a, a culture that has had a text that says power is made perfect in weakness. Well, there, you can obviously see the connection there that people would be envious of that logic and say, hey, I'm going to rightfully or wrongly use, that concept of power made perfect in weakness as a bludgeon to get revenge on those who tended to have the violent power closer in their grasp. So that's why it's, but, but see, again, you can see that because we don't want to renounce a violence, we don't want to renounce vengeance, we don't renounce scapegoating, we take this Christian revelation and we try to fit it right back into the same old bad habit that it came to liberate us from in the first place. So we say, okay, well, Christ is king. I'm not saying, I want you to understand something. I'm not saying that this is a conscious thing. Like the people who are accusing Harvey Weinstein are like, oh, well, well, Jesus is, is God, and therefore, you know, I have a right to have my dignity against the violent people. No, that's not like how it works. It's an, an unconscious cultural shaping based on aesthetic, which is the art, which is the theater, which is drama, which is movies, which is all the, you know, the high art to the popular art, all that trickles down from Christianity. And, and it's, it's, it's through uh, generations of people practicing an understanding of, of, a, of an unconscious kind of atmosphere of Christianity you know, that we're in. So it's like being in a fishbowl uh, and asking, how's the water? You know? And that's how Christianity is. Christianity is that water in our fishbowl even though we still constantly try to scapegoat Christianity, and we try to scapegoat, and, and so that's the irony of this whole thing. We Not only do we still want to keep scapegoating each other, so now we do it so if you're just accused of a sexual impropriety, you're automatically railroaded out of town. Now it's becoming a trend. That's a mimetic scapegoating phenomenon, which is not good. That's very dangerous. That's going to lose the protection of the person against the collective that Christianity brought to our civilization. But now there's this, uh, so, so we've lost, we've lost our, our, uh, uh, 
not only do we want to scapegoat people in the name of protecting victims, but we also scapegoat the Bible. We scapegoat Christianity. We say, well, Christianity is not protecting victims enough. Christianity is patriarchal, and Christianity is, um, uh, it, it allows people to accept their violence done against them and not get revenge. So Christianity is considered passe. Uh, it's considered impotent in, ability, in its ability to defend victims. And, and so we scapegoat Christianity, and we scapegoat the Gospels while we continue to scapegoat each other. And it's because the, it's because the Gospels open up a mirror to allow us to see that we are imitative creatures, that we do not uh, desire things and because of their inherent object, because of their inherent value, but we desire them because other people have them, and we want to be like everybody else. We want to keep up with the Joneses. We hate that about the Christian revelation, that it cuts us to our core. It cuts us to our very sense of who we are. And then we also hate Christianity because it exposes the violence at the heart of our cultural behavior. And then we don't want to see that. We want to think, we want to think that we're smart enough that if we were in the time of our ancestors, we would have done it better. We wouldn't have been so primitive and so patriarchal or whatever. So we have this stupid hubris that humanity has always had almost every generation that, oh, we're exceptional, we're smarter than everybody else that's come before us, we're enlightened, we're sensitive, blah, 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 because of our own whatever. But we don't ever want to understand, no, 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 Christianity will, will unveil that we're just finding more clever ways to hide our violent proclivities. One of the last things that I'd like to talk about here, and we've seen several unfortunate examples of it just in the United States, uh, really in the past couple of years, but also throughout 2017, are these uh, mass shootings. And, you know, often the narrative from the left is, oh, look, the gun violence is on the rise. It's at an all-time high. But really, when you look at the data, per capita, gun violence is about the same as it was 20 years ago. There's just more raw incidences uh, because there's more there's more people than there were 20 years ago. Nevertheless, uh, these are these are extremely tragic uh, occurrences, and they're super sensationalized by the media, and we fixate on them as as a country. Uh, there's the congressional baseball shooting, which is probably the the, the most relevant to uh, to to scapegoating this idea that. Uh, this shooter was going to come in and he was, he was going to attack Republicans and kill as many Republicans as he could. Uh, but there was also the Manchester terrorist attack in the UK. More recently, there was the Las Vegas shooting, the church shooting in Texas. What, how do we look at that through Girardian theory? One of the things that's obvious that because of the notoriety and the fame that these people see others getting for killing people, that there's an obvious mimetic desire to copy that so that they can become famous, if they can have a little bit of infamy. Um, these are people who are socially often very poorly adjusted. They're resentful and envious of society's um, sense of normalcy that they perceive them having. And so they feel like if they can't have it themselves, well, they're going to become, they're going to basically embrace their role as a scapegoat. They feel like they're a misfit already. So they have a right to kind of accept the monster status that they believe society has already placed on them and act out the violent monster role that they feel they have to play. Um, so it's like basically like the demoniac not being cured of his legion of demons and instead saying, I'll show you guys for leaving me out in the uh, 
tombs and he does he throws a bunch of he starts an avalanche and kills the town to shit to make his town make his fame known of course he'll be he'll be killed by the roman authorities when they get there but he's become infamous and he's got his revenge that's what's happening with the police sh- I mean, with these uh, a lot of these shootings but uh, you're right that um it's it, it, that's another uh, tricky thing you know because again think about it with the um when someone you know tries to kill people like the guy trying to assassinate Congress, he really believes that he's acting in self-defense, you know, and that's the whole that's the whole irony of of scapegoating is to have a scapegoat is to not know you have one. It's to really believe that that person slighted you or hurt you or started violence first, and you truly believe that you're acting in retaliation, not as initiation of aggression and uh, that logic is at the heart of all these attempts at scapegoating by killing people and so forth but you know remember just because we still try to do it it doesn't work and and that's why it's losing its power because in the old days prior to christ scapegoating and violence sacred violence enacted by the priestly caste or the king or what have you it had a it had a power to unite, but uh, as you see today, because Jesus has opened up the paradigm of scapegoating and exposed it to the light of day, now it doesn't unite, and now we're constantly divided over who's really the most victimized person in a given scenario. Is it the person who uh, gun laws are going to take his guns away, even though he's peaceably owning one, he's not doing anything wrong? never harmed a fly, just owns a certain type of gun they want to restrict? Is that the scapegoat? Or is the scapegoat the person who uh, was a victim of someone having a gun and shooting it? You know, ultimately, we we can't agree on who the victims are. And therefore, even though we still try to enact scapegoating violence, it, it, it less and less unites us because of the cross throwing a monkey wrench into the entire gear system. Because when you try to scapegoat God himself, he'll break the system from within through his radical non-retribution. Uh, through his forbearance of it, he breaks the system through its own weight. And uh, we just have to catch up as a, as a culture. We need to catch up and understand what God's really trying to show us. That Christianity gives us a choice to renounce violence. Remember what Jesus said? I mean, this is why it's, we, we've lost it so much in the church. What is Jesus saying to Israel? He says, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, if you had only, you know, turned from your ways, you know. And what is the ways that he's talking about? He's talking about this idea that we have the right to use revenge and use violence to dominate others to get back at what they've done to us. And he says, as long as you do that, you're stuck in that mimetic mirror cycle of violence. And because I've taken away the scapegoat mechanism, Jesus says to us, you have to sink or swim now. Now you've got to grow up. As a species, I'm taking the bumpers off of the bowling game, and now you better bowl right. Because if you keep relying on violence, it's only going to get worse than it was in the old days because you don't have any way to channel that into scapegoats because whenever you scapegoat, it never really lasts with catharsis anymore. So now nothing unites us. And that's exactly what you know Clarence Thomas said recently, the Supreme Court Justice. He said, nothing unites us anymore. The flag doesn't unite us. The anthem doesn't unite us. These things don't unite us anymore, and that's the dissolution of the, the sacred violence of the state. So we're living in a really amazing time in history, because a lot of the things, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost, and you can see 
the the nuclear power of the gospel working itself out. And it and again, it's not an ideology. It always gives us a choice. You know, continue your way and do the way of Satan, or 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 renounce that and uh and and, and imitate the real logos which is what would ultimately allow us to have voluntary societies. David, thank you for giving us your analysis of you know these events in 2017 and giving us sort of the reason to understand why it's important to see what's happening through the lens of mimetic, of mimetic theory. I'd encourage listeners, if you haven't, if this is the first episode that's introduced you to, to mimetic theory, go back and listen to the episode uh, that where David uh, talks about that more in depth. And uh, we would also invite you to uh, check out his podcast, A Neighbor's Choice. Uh, you can find that out on YouTube, right, David? Yes, neighborschoice.com or my channel uh, on YouTube. If you type in David Gornoski on YouTube, you can find my work there as well. I also write at uh, fee.org, um, Lou Rockwell, The American Conservative, and other sites. Great. Well, thanks again for being with us uh, to kick off our year. Yeah, thanks again. I enjoyed this discussion, and I hope we can uh, continue it onwards and start something new here uh, for people to understand the importance of Christianity and, and how we uh, think of these things. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. The Libertarian Christian Institute is a 501c3 organization that depends on your donations, so uh, even the smallest donation matters quite a lot to us, and we ask you to go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate if you'd like to support us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.